Good morning. Guys, I love that. I want to be a church that um, deeply cares about Cincinnati, specifically the urban core of Cincinnati. But I love that we're a church that is starting to engage with more than just America. And I think that's really special. And uh, you guys should talk to the people that went uh, on that trip. They're coming back with a whole new kind of fire. And it is so fun. Um, it's so fun to hear some of their stories. And so um, talk to them. It is. It, it should build faith. I mean, even hearing that story from Sarah of like, I went from a little skeptical to like, oh, God still speaks and he moves and he does wonders all over the earth. And, uh, and he's not confined to Mexico, but he can do those kinds of things here as well. And so I want to be the kind of person that really believes that. Um, one quick thing before I jump in. Uh, in two weeks, uh, we're doing child dedication. And so uh, if you're newer to this community or if you've had a baby in the last year, because we did this last summer, um, I would love to ask you, like, would you consider talking about what that means to have your child dedicated here? So in two weeks, we're going to do that. Um, Megan, our kid city leader, uh, is the person that you would talk to about that. But it's going to be, it's like one of my favorite Sundays. Last year was so special. Um, talk to Megan. Her email is megan at citychurchotr.com. And um, consider having uh, your baby dedicated and even what that means, what uh, is the kind of theology or um, thought behind why we do that. So, okay, um, this morning, uh, and if you don't know, if you're new here, my name's Chris. I'm the pastor here and thrilled that you're here. Um, this morning's going to be so fun because I've been like thinking about this message for a while. It is um, mind-blowing, not because like I discovered it, but because the Bible's awesome. And, uh, but what that means is it's going to be one of those Sundays. One of those, we're just like deep, deep in Old Covenant, Testament, Mesopotamia, and you're going to be so tempted to fall asleep, but you won't because you know that relevance is coming. Very good. Relevance is coming. So hang on for about 15 minutes. In about 10 minutes, you will, you will be tempted to think, I don't care about what was going on 4,000 years ago. I don't care the way they made promises back then. I could be at brunch. But remember, relevance is coming. And you will, you will, I hope, learn something today and fall more in love with God's word. So 15 minutes of painful background, as always, or about one-third of the time that I'm teaching, we start in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Actually, I'm going to read a little bit of Genesis 11 to introduce us to the characters, the primary character we're reading about this morning. His name is Abram. Genesis 11, verse 30 says, Now Sarai, which is his wife, was childless because she was not able to conceive. So that's a little bit of an intro into this. And maybe you've heard of Abraham and Sarah. They had their names changed at some point. So in this passage, they are still Abram and Sarai. So Genesis 12, 1 through 3. The Lord said to Abraham, Abram, sorry, I just said that. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Go from your country your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. Now, what's needed to become a great nation? Descendants. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and your name will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now, that last part of what we call, and use this with your friends so you can sound smart, the Abrahamic covenant, that last part is, I believe, one of the most fundamental passages in the Old Testament because we're waiting for years and years and years to see what's the fulfillment of who comes through Abraham to, Abram to bless every other nation. Who's going to do that? And um, if you've been around church at all, you know the answer is always Jesus. 
we're actually going to focus on the first part of that covenant here. So the summary of the Abrahamic covenant is this. God says, Abram, I'm going to give you land, descendants, and you're going to be a blessing to all nations. Land, descendants, and you're going to be a blessing to all nations. So God's response to evil that is now kind of taking over the world is to send one man and one woman and say, I'm going to use you to bless and bring my goodness all over the earth. It's so interesting. It's so interesting that that's the way that God chooses to interact with his creation, is to send somebody in, a few people in, and say, I want you to take my goodness all over this place. Now, I want you to go from Genesis 12 to Genesis 15. So do that, and as you do that, it's going to take you seconds. It's going to take like two flips of a page or three hits of an arrow on you version. Here's what I want you to remember. This is decades. You just skipped over decades. Decades of history have now passed, about 25 years, and guys, guess what? Still no kids. Still no kids. Actually, at this point, it is pretty much biologically impossible for these guys to have kids. And so in Genesis 15, uh, verse 1, it says, After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. Now, at the end of Genesis 14, Abram and his servants have taken over and actually defeated four different kings. And uh, the, the operating agreement at the time is if you defeat a king, you can take the plunder. And God at the, or Abram at the very end of Genesis 14 says, no, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. He said, if anyone's going to make me rich, it's going to be God. I am not going to take anything. I'm not going to accumulate anything from them. If anyone makes me rich, it's going to be God. And so then God's response in Genesis 15.1 is very good. I can work with that. I am your great reward. I am going to give you everything that you need. And then Abram pushes back a little, which is so interesting. Verse 2, Abram responds to God and says, Sovereign Lord. So he starts with some sovereignty and says, What can you give me since I still remain childless? And the one who's going to inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. You can just sense the sorrow. Eliezer of Damascus, that's not a guy I want to leave my stuff to, right? We don't know anything about Eliezer. He is likely the head slave, uh, head servant of Abram. And he says, look, I, I don't really want to leave my stuff to Eliezer of Damascus. So God says, I'll be your reward. Abram says, sounds great, but, but you still haven't kept your promise from chapters ago, years ago. You still haven't given me kids. And what's so interesting is in verse 3, if you read it, God does not smite Abram. So that must mean that God is not opposed to our questions. God is not opposed to our questions. This was written, uh, Genesis was written in Hebrew. There's actually a really famous Hebrew word that represents what's going on here. It's chutzpah. Everybody say chutzpah, back of the throat. Very good. I did a lot of yelling yesterday, so like my voice is, but like you got to get it all the way back there. Chutzpah, okay? And so it's that shameless audacity that Abram says, look, if I'm honest, God Almighty, Sovereign Lord, you still haven't even kept your promise from chapters ago, from years ago. There, there's still no kids in my life. And here's what God says to Abram in verse 4. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited to him as righteousness. Paul quotes that verse three times in the New Testament. It was Abram's faith 
that was credited to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of the Ur of Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, again, here he is, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. So summary here, let's stop. How can I trust you, God? And I love God's response. Bring me a heifer. (laughs) Classic, classic God. Husbands, never mind. Things are about to get weird. And I know what you're thinking. They already got weird. You lost me a little. Things are actually about to get even weirder. Verse 10, Abram brought all these things to him, cut them in half, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite of each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. What the heck is going on? What's so interesting is we don't see any other explanation. It seems like Abram actually knows what to do with these animals. He gets the heifer, the goat, the ram, and he cuts them in half. And, uh, and here's what Abram's doing. Abram knows, oh, you want me to make a blood covenant with you. And so what would happen, I mean, remember, guys, this is 4,000 years ago. What would happen back then? There is no notary, notary republic. There is no um, court of law. There is no contract. I mean, the only kind of contract you could make is give someone your word. But if you really wanted to be serious, you could make a covenant with them. And there were all kinds of covenants that were kind of agreed upon in uh, this time. And uh, there was a shoe covenant where you trade shoes. There was a salt covenant. There was like a lesser blood covenant where you would cut each other's arms. You'd do a forearm grab like the action movies. And then you would uh, you'd actually suck the other person's blood. The CDC put a stop to that one though. <laughs> and, uh, and then there's the ultimate blood covenant. The one that we're about to see here. And here's how this would work. Mesopotamian covenant law said, look. You can cut animals down the half. You put them on the sides of a ditch so the blood would run to the middle. And what it would happen, obviously gravity, it would form what, would call, what you would call a blood path. So there would be all of this blood coming to the middle, and you would walk through the blood path. And who would walk through first is the greater party. And what the greater party is saying is, look, if I don't keep my end of the, the bargain, if I don't keep my end of the covenant, you can do to me what we have done to these animals. You can walk through my blood. And what the lesser party is saying is the exact same thing. If, you, if I don't keep my end of this covenant, you can do to me what we've done to these animals. You can walk through my blood. And there would be a blood path that they would actually walk through. The greater party goes first, which would be God, right? The lesser party, which would be Abram, goes second. We don't have live pictures from this at the time. So this is an illustration of what it likely would have looked like. So greater party walks first, lesser party walks second. The story continues. Relevance is so close. We're almost there. Verse 12, it says, as the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep. And this is like he had a vision, not like normal sleep, like you might be tempted to do. And a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Very Jewish way of saying he was terrified. Why was Abram terrified? Because he was about to enter into a blood covenant with God Almighty. He was about to enter into a covenant that said, you can do to me what we've done to these animals if I don't hold up my end of the agreement. So what was God's end of the covenant? Well, we read that in Genesis 12. God says, look, if I don't give you land, descendants, and if I don't bless other nations through you, you can do to me what we've done to these animals. I mean, as if, but that's what God's saying. And then on the other end, what's Abram's deal? Well, in Genesis 17, so jump ahead, same covenant, 
It says, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you, and I will greatly increase your number. So same kind of thing. Most scholars believe this is the same covenant that's going on in Genesis 15, but we can see the outline all throughout the next three chapters of what is required of Abram. Abram is to do this thing called circumcision, which is a sign of faithfulness. But then it says, walk before me blamelessly. No big deal. Your end of the deal is I need you to be blameless. And, and the implication of this covenant is not just Abram and God. It's God and Abram and his descendants. Because he's going to bless his descendants. He's going to give his descendants land. But also, Abram, I need you and your descendants to walk before me blamelessly. Why is Abram terrified? Because he's about to enter a blood covenant that says, God, you can do to me if me and my descendants are not blameless. Verse 17. Here's the relevance. I expect like raging applause after this. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch appeared and passed through the pieces. Oh, oh, okay. We're not there? Let me explain what this is. Because this, this is it. This is the mic drop. Blazing tor- uh, smoking fire pot and a blazing torch appeared. Here's what's interesting. Who is supposed to walk through first? The greater party, which is God. So a smoking fire pot goes between the animals. And we know this, right? Old Testament, if you are at all familiar with the Bible, smoke is usually a sign of God. So when God meets with Moses on Mount Sinai, the whole mountain is enveloped in smoke. When um, God leads the Israelites out through the wilderness by day, he leads them in a pillar of, of smoke or a cloud. So this makes sense. God walks through first because God is the greater party. Here's what's interesting. The second thing to go through is a blazing torch. And what's so interesting is that fire is never used to represent humanity in the Bible. Fire is never used as a token to represent man. What's equally interesting is fire is always used to represent God in the Bible. When God leads the Israelites by night, he leads them through a pillar of fire. When God comes through the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, they look like tongues of fire. So God is always represented by fire. What's the implication? God makes a blood covenant with Abram, but God walked through twice. God walked through the covenant twice. God let Abram stand aside and said, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through the second time. So here's what's happening. God says, look, if I don't give you descendants, land, blessed to be a blessing, you can do to me what we've done to these animals. And instead of Abram, God says, Abram, if you and your descendants are not blameless before me, then you can still do to me what we've done to these animals. If I don't keep my word, I'll pay. But if you don't keep your word, I'll still pay. God walked through twice. God provides what God demands. Oh, man, I'm so sorry. God provides what God demands because God said, I'm going to pay the thing for you because you can't pay for it yourself. That should get you a little bit excited because that means you don't have to pay for your sin anymore. Let's go on. Let's get to the New Testament. I know you're just waiting. We get to the cross. Show me Jesus. Okay, I will. 
2,000 years later, there is God's people worshiping uh, him through temple and uh, animal sacrifices, exactly how God had designed it. Uh, the animals that were used in that sacrifice, just fun fact, were um, heifers, goats, rams, pigeons, and doves. Same animals from Genesis 15. Every day, twice a day, the, the sacrifice was offered, one at 9 a.m., another at 3 p.m. Uh, what would happen, and I have a prop, actually, is at 9 a.m. and at 3 p.m., they would blow what they call a shofar. This is a ram's horn. Someone gave this to me uh, years ago. And so this, this is what they would blow to symbolize. The time has hit. It's time to make a sacrifice. So, fun fact. What's that? Oh, you want me to blow it? Oh, well, I'm, I'm totally not prepared for this, but okay. Okay. Uh, it, when you blow a shofar, it actually helps to hold your cell phone up. So, you guys ready? Okay. Stop having fun in church, guys. Let's be serious. Church isn't fun. Jesus isn't exciting. I can't blow it. It's actually really difficult. You're welcome to try after this. Um, one person, and then somebody should probably sanitize it. There's a biography, uh, four biographies written about a guy, a Jewish carpenter, uh, alleged rabbi, and messiah. One of them is uh, the book of John. And in John 19, it says that at 9 a.m., this alleged Messiah was hoisted upon a cross, 9 a.m., the time of the first sacrifice. <clears throat> and he stays there for six hours. For us, that might not mean anything, but at 3 p.m., the exact time of the second sacrifice, Jesus gave up his life. But before he gave up his life, he yelled something. So interesting. Before he gave up his life, one of the final words he said is, um, it is finished. It's a Greek word, to telestai. It is is finished. And I read that, you know, and maybe you read that and you think, well, yeah, his, his pain is finished. That's not what he was talking about. His life is finished. That's definitely not what he was talking about. His ministry is finished. Of course, that's not what he was talking about. This is so random, but Jesus is hanging on a cross and he yells a banking term. This is like an accounting term in the Greek language. He yells, it is finished. And what it means is a commercial transaction has been paid in full. How about that? Jesus hanging on a cross, and he starts yelling banking terms. He yells, the transaction that was marked in blood 2,000 years ago, that is finished. It is paid in full. Now, we read it is finished, and we think, well, yeah, uh, the pain's over. Praise God, or his life's over, but we know it's really not. But a Jew sitting around there steeped in Old Testament culture would have been like, oh, I know exactly where that's from. That's from Genesis 15. There is a blood covenant that God made. And I remember, I remember God walked through twice and he said, if our descendants are not blameless, and, and looking around, we've hung this guy on a cross, it seems like we're not blameless. If we're not blameless, God said that we could walk through his blood in the same way that we did with those animals. And I want you to get a picture of what was going on in Jerusalem at that time. Jesus was beaten beyond recognition, but then he has to go to the top of a mountain to be crucified. And all throughout Jerusalem, there's a blood path that guilty followers of God, followers of God, got to walk through the blood of God. It is finished. God kept his promise. And this is why the blood of Jesus is such a big deal. It's weird that we sing songs about it. I get it. And if you're new to church, like, that is a little strange. 
But the blood of Jesus is such a big deal because God kept his promise with Abram and said, if you're not blameless, you can do to me. You can shed the blood of the almighty God and I'll pay for your end of the covenant. Here's why this matters to you. Because if you're a follower of Jesus, you've been told that you're forgiven. And you are. And there's a couple ways that we can wrongly walk this out. Number one is we can say, I'm forgiven. I can do anything I want. Big grace, fall on grace, God is love, I'm forgiven. And we know. We know that is not the heart of Jesus. There's another end of that story, too. And maybe you've experienced this. Where you say, I'm forgiven, or at least they're forgiven, but I... I've done some pretty bad stuff, so I should probably still bring my morality to the God table and make that an offer to him. So I'm I'm forgiven mostly. And what Jesus would say is, no, actually, that's not true. And what Paul would say in Romans is, that's not true. Paul says in Romans 3.25, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness his righteousness not his mercy although God is merciful he did it to demonstrate his own righteousness or another word for righteousness or uh, uh, outworking of that is his justice so the Christian in light of Genesis 15 and John 19 the Christian can now appeal not only to God's mercy but we can appeal to God's justice the price has been paid the covenant has been fulfilled Christians get to appeal to the justice of God. Um, here's, how, here's how this works. Uh, I need a hypothetical restaurant, Chick-fil-A. Okay, great. Um, and then I need, a, I need a volunteer. Okay, Mandy. Mandy, great. Um, so Mandy and I are friends. She's super generous and gracious. And uh, let's say that Mandy gets a part-time job at Chick-fil-A. Okay? And uh, I go to Chick-fil-A every day. I, I don't. But let's say that I go to Chick-fil-A every day. It's not a stretch. Um, Let's also say I'm the kind of guy that forgets my wallet a lot, like really often. So I forget my wallet a lot, and I go, but I've got to have my nuggets. got to have my nugs. So um, I go to Chick-fil-A, and I see Mandy at the uh, register, and I'm like, what's up, Mandy? And she's like, hey, Chris, how you doing? I'm like, oh, I just want my nug. Oh, Mandy, I'm so sorry. I forgot my wallet. And what's Mandy going to say? She's nice. She's going to say, oh, no big deal. I'll cover you this time. Thanks, Mandy. I'll get you tomorrow. I come back tomorrow, get in my nugs, go through the drive-thru. Mandy, how you doing? And, oh, my gosh, Mandy, I am so sorry. I forgot it again. It's okay, Chris. Just please bring it tomorrow, but I'll, I'll pay for it again out of my own pocket. Okay, great. I'm appealing to Mandy's mercy in this. Uh, Day three, I come. Mandy, I'm so sorry. I need my nuggets. I could drive home. Do you want me to drive home? It's 25 minutes, so it'll be almost an hour. Do you... Oh, you'll pay? Okay. Okay, I'll let you pay. The, I, I promise, tomorrow. And she's going to say, yeah, but you really need to pay for me. You really need to pay me back tomorrow. I'm appealing, and I'm wearing a little bit thin the mercy that she might have. Now, God's mercy never runs out, I know. But for the sake of this illustration, I want you to imagine my feeling, even as I'm appealing to Mandy's mercy, when's she not going to pay for me? Day four? Day five? I promise you, there will come a day, probably in the first week, that Mandy says, I'm so sorry, I can't keep doing this. I, I really need you to pay me back for the nuggets from this whole past week. I, I just, I need you to bring your wall. I'm sorry, I want to, but I can't. That's me appealing to Mandy's mercy. 
Now, in light of Genesis 15 and the blood covenant, I want to appeal not to her mercy, but I want to appeal to Mandy's justice. Scenario number two, let's add a third character in the mix. We'll call her Catherine. Catherine is my wife, and Catherine knows that maybe I forget my wallet quite frequently. So she buys a $100 Chick-fil-A gift card, but she doesn't tell me about it. She gives it to Mandy. She says, Mandy, any time that he doesn't um, have his wallet, I want you to use this. Whenever it gets down to 20 bucks, let me know. I'll refill it back up again. Day one, I go, hey, eight-piece nugget, actually probably 12-piece. How you doing? Oh, my gosh, I forgot my wallet. What's Mandy going to say? Hey, no big deal. Do you want a Diet Coke with that? Yes. Yes, I do. Day two, same thing. Don't worry about it. Chris, it's okay. Let let me get you some fries. Day three, how long can this instance go on? Hypothetically, as long as Catherine keeps making money, forever. This never ends. Actually, and I'll go so far to say this. This would never end. Mandy's never going to stop giving me Chick-fil-A because it would be unfair. It would be unjust for Mandy to say, no, you need to pay for that when somebody has already paid for it for me. Mandy's going to, Mandy, her integrity is going to beg her to say, no, you can keep coming as much as you want because there is an unlimited account paid by someone else that allows you to keep coming through here and doing this. And that means, follower of Jesus, that means for you that you don't have to go to God and repent the 100th time and wonder if he runs out at 101. That never is a concern for you because the forgiveness of God never runs out, not because his mercy never runs out, although that's true. It's because his justice requires that he would give it to us because he himself fulfilled the covenant that he made with Abram. God's justice allows you to come to him and be forgiven. 1 John 1.9 says, um, uh, yep, I know it's in 1 John. You guys know what it is. When... When we confess our sins, or even what we talked about last week, when we repent, when we come to God again, when we confess, when we repent of our sins, he is faithful and he is just. Not merciful, not loving, he is just to forgive us. Why? Because he's already paid for it. There is no amount of mercy that we need to appeal to from God that we need to worry about if it's going to ever run out because it's actually his justice that keeps Forgiving us. That's why it matters in some obscure passage in Genesis 15 that a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch go through animals. Because now you're standing before God has nothing to do with your performance. God so loved the world that he gave what was required. God walked through twice. And you have nothing that you can bring to the God that said it is finished. There is nothing that you can do before the God that said it is finished. That's what this means for us. I want to now dig a little into how do we take this practice, because we're in this series about practice. How do we make this practice real in us? Uh, Matthew 18, I'd encourage you to read the whole parable, but Jesus tells this parable of a servant who begs a king for forgiveness for 10,000 bags of gold. And the king says, okay, it is forgiven. And that servant then goes to his servant and says, pay me back the 100 coins of silver that you have taken from me. And he throws him in jail and he beats him. When the king heard about that, verse 32, it says, The master called the servant in and said, You wicked servant, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. 
Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Guys, that's intense. That sounds like some Old Testament stuff, right? But no, that is Jesus saying, the way you receive forgiveness, I need you to give that to others. See, God doesn't just forgive. God is forgiveness. That is who God is. It is his nature to forgive. And sometimes we get in this mindset of Old Testament, New Testament God, like they're different people. God was forgiving in the Old Testament. 658 times the word forgiveness is used before Jesus ever comes onto the scene. Jesus didn't invent forgiveness. He fulfilled and completed it. And sometimes we get this idea that it's Jesus that brought grace, convinced his father, you know, his liberal son, comes back from college, says, hey, what about this idea of grace? That is not how it worked. God has always been gracious. He's always been merciful. God is a forgiver. He doesn't just forgive. It is in in his nature to be a forgiver. So let's talk about what forgiveness is not. Real practical. How does this work in our lives? Number one, forgiveness is not forgetting. Forgiveness is not forgetting. You do not have to forgive and act like it never happened. Forgive and forget is a phrase out there, but it's not necessarily something we have to uh, apply to. That's not a biblical thing. We have to forgive, but we do not have to forget. And the deeper the cut that's been done to us, the harder it's going to be to forget. Number two, forgiveness is not negotiable. Reconciliation is. Forgiveness is not negotiable. Reconciliation is. And you've potentially seen crazy stories of uh, moms and dads who have forgiven the murderer of their child. I mean, it's like these crazy stories of the grace of God fills them and they forgive the, the person that's killed their child. But we don't ever really see them becoming friends. Forgiveness, no matter how heinous the crime, how heinous the act, forgiveness is non-negotiable. But reconciliation, getting back to that pre-happening, uh, pre-event state, it does not have to be that way. Sometimes it might be wise to not. So we always forgive the girlfriend that hurt us, the father that walked out on us, the abuser, the toxic person, the church. We forgive all, but that does not mean we have to enter back into full relationship with them like we were before. Forgiveness is non-negotiable. Number three, forgiveness, and you better be excited about this one because forgiveness is not fair. Forgiveness is not fair. For the follower of Jesus, we give what, we, what they don't deserve because we have received what we don't deserve. We give what they don't deserve because we have received what we don't deserve. Psalm 103.10 says, He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. So it might be fair to hold a grudge, but it's not right. It might be fair that you pay for your sins for eternity, but it's not required. Forgiveness is not fair, and that's really, really good news. So practically, um, whose name still makes you cringe a little bit? If you think about them, who, who makes you get a little bit angry in your soul before you think about um, something else? Where is there unforgiveness in your heart? Um, my challenge this morning is to talk to God about them. And maybe if it's right to talk to them about that. Where is there still unforgiveness in your heart? And you'll be surprised 
how much healing can come from a vulnerable conversation, either with God or with that person. I've heard it described this way um, from my pastor in Las Vegas. Unforgiveness is like drinking poison and hoping the other person dies. It just doesn't make any sense. And sometimes when we hold on to unforgiveness, we assume it's hurting them, that we're not right with them, but all we're doing is poisoning our own soul. Unforgiveness is like drinking poison and hoping the other person dies. The band um, can come back up. We're going to go into worship. But I want to ask two big questions. Number one, to whom have you not given forgiveness? And believe me, I'm asking myself this question too. To whom have you not given forgiveness? Number two, where have you not received forgiveness? Where are you still trying to pay for a covenant that's already been fulfilled? To whom have you not given forgiveness and where have you not received forgiveness? Also, um, we're doing this in about a month, but if you have not responded to God's forgiveness in baptism, that is your next step. Um, If you haven't done that as an adult or as a believer since you've made that decision, I want to talk to you about that. Baptism is the next step for the believer. It's identifying with his church and it's identifying with the covenant that you're now saying, yeah, that, I want that to pay for me. Uh, We're going to go into worship, and uh, as always, there's going to be prayer available at the front and the back. Uh, A note about this, don't don't think you've got to be in some deep crisis to get prayer. It does not have to be a big thing. Get prayer. Don't come in and leave with the same burden. Get prayer. These people want to pray. The front is always open to respond, and then the Lord's table for anyone who's a believer in Jesus is available to you. And uh, we're going to sing a song called Alabaster Heart, and it comes from a story that we read about a month ago where uh, Mary takes a jar of expensive perfume, a jar made of alabaster, and she breaks it before the Lord and washes his feet. And it's uh, a beautiful song to symbolize what we get to do with Jesus. We get to waste, waste it all on Jesus, hold nothing back. And that's the kind of heart that we want to have. And so God, we ask that you would be moving in worship. And Father, let us remember that you've walked through twice the the, the covenant has been paid for. Lord, help us to live into your justice. We thank you for your mercy, but God, I'm so thankful that your justice gives me forgiveness every time I come to you. Jesus, we thank you for your blood. It's in your name we pray. Amen.